0: It's Monday, January 31st, 2022. From Peach Fish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. After Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, and a couple non Canadian chantreuses and chanteurs asked to be removed from Spotify, of examples of misinformation within Joe Rogan's podcast, Spotify management over the weekend laid out how it would be labeling and addressing their concerns. Rogan himself made a video in which he addressed the controversy about two episodes with his guests who
1: were in fact highly credentialed. One is the most published in his field and the other... Dr. Robert Malone owns nine patents on the creation of mRNA vaccine technology and is at least partially responsible for the creation of the technology that led to mRNA vaccines. Both these people are very highly credentialed, very intelligent, very accomplished people, and they have an opinion that's different from the mainstream narrative. I wanted to hear what their opinion is. Fair enough, except
0: not a foolproof way to combat misinformation highly credentialed guests will actually have a bigger impact on the audience than speakers with no standing. The impulse isn't nefarious, but it can be dangerous. But Rogan acknowledged that he can do better than just having the conversation. He said he'd do more research and be prepared with more pushback, which is good. He also said, rightly, I think, that his show was never meant to be a repository of guidance. He's doing now what he's always done, which is being guided by his own curiosity with a caveat emptor implication. You could argue, well, all right, but now you get half a million listeners. You have a higher standard than when you're just shooting the shit with Carrot Top or an MMA fighter or an ivermectin acolyte. You know my opinion. I think we as the emptors should take the show with caveats. I also think the caveat venditor message of Neil Young was okay. It's an okay one for Neil Young to make, but it could have big costs if Spotify sought to reform Rogan by silencing Rogan. It could also backfire. I also think Rogan is actually caused quite a bit of good information to enter the world to people who might not otherwise hear it, though not in the field of COVID studies. I was talking to a plumber friend of mine who got into listening to a specific podcast about the wrongly accused exactly, precisely because of Rogan. He never would have listened to that podcast otherwise. Rogan is not ill-intended so far as I could tell. But I also think that is not where the consideration ends. He's not trying to spread propaganda. However... Listen to this part of his justification for why he includes alternative viewpoints from the mainstream.
1: The problem I have with the term misinformation, especially today, is that many of the things that we thought of as misinformation just a short while ago are now accepted as fact. Like, for instance, eight months ago, if you said if you get vaccinated, you can still catch COVID and you can still spread COVID, you would be removed from social media. They would they would ban you from certain platforms. Now that's accepted as fact if you said, I don't think cloth masks work, you would be banned from social media. Now that's openly and repeatedly stated on CNN. If you said, I think it's possible that COVID-19 came from a lab, you'd be banned from many social media platforms. Now that's on the cover of Newsweek. Those are accurate points. They're also exactly what a propagandist would say. This is the
0: idea of nothing is real and everything is possible that the Soviets and now the Russians deploy. Emphasize the inaccuracies of mainstream opinion over the past. They were inaccuracies, what he said, but also use that as a wedge for greater counter inaccuracies. And this is why propaganda works so well, by the way, because it's often indistinguishable from valid points. I mean, we do that way. They were wrong about this, they were wrong about that. We do that for a hundred different subject areas. Well, we once believed formula was better than breast milk. Now the message is women who give birth need to breastfeed. We once believed the melting pot was a progressive idea. Now it's regressive. We once believed in the early detection of cancer. Now we say, wait until there is a sign. So therefore what, cancer is a myth? I mean, I could drive a truck or an entire ideology through the gaps that are created by those uncertainties. The reason that misinformation works is that it's basically containing the same DNA as information, it's sort of like a vaccine. There are better methods and worst methods for the pursuit of truth. But even if Joe Rogan isn't actively lying, I am pretty sure he is not, even if he has the best of intentions or the sloppiest, good intentions, what matters is mostly not the process by which facts are presented, but the accuracy of the facts themselves. With COVID, the facts aren't always knowable. Knowing this, I believe circumstance argues less for shutting Rogan up and more for emphasizing that Rogan's method and message aren't the best in class when it comes to the purveyance of COVID information. By the way, heavy-handed WHO dictates they're also not. Presidential press conferences have proven flawed too. The best thing we could do is nudge the public towards belief in science consensus while also acknowledging the fallibility of science. In fact, if it's not falsifiable and not sometimes false, it's not science. And Joe Rogan isn't presenting science. He's presenting his thoughts and we've gotta let him have those. On the show today, I spiel about Boris Johnson's party problem, an odd sort of misdeed when it comes to political malfeasance. It's the vino, not the vino. Also, let me take this moment to preview tomorrow's spiel. I shall be fact checking that Robert Malone segment that Rogan just referenced. Yeah, I spent a lot of time with that one. But first, Jonathan Gottschall is a professor at Washington and Jefferson College who studies the role of stories. He does so not just by reading, but by researching how stories really work. And when they work, Gottschall now believes, it's not always a good thing. Jonathan Gottschall, author of The Story Paradox, How Our Love of Storytelling Builds Societies and Tears Them Down. We are Homo sapiens, the thinking animal. But Jonathan Gottschall, the author of The Story Paradox, says maybe Homo fictus would be a better label because we are the only creatures that make up stories. The writer Yuval Harari says that the difference between humans and chimps isn't just that no human would tear off a lady's face at a moment's provocation, or could. It's that no chimp ever said, "'I will get to heaven and have more bananas "'if I am good here on Earth.'" What Gottschall is doing in this book and his last, The Storytelling Animal, is considering the role of stories in all of human development. I don't think it goes too far to say he says it's the most important thing in civilization. Jonathan Gottschall, welcome to The Gist. Uh, Thanks for having me on The Gist, I appreciate it. What's interesting to me isn't just that uh, you riff and go about this from a humanities professor's perspective. There is something called narratology, narrative studies, actual empirical data. What's the role of that in understanding how stories work?
2: I think it's very important. You know, when I came into graduate school, which is maybe 25 years ago now, I'm getting to be an old guy, um, there was a sort of understanding that everything interesting about storytelling was qualitative. You could read about it, you could write about it, you could think about it, but what you couldn't do was study it quantitatively. None of the questions would yield to a scientific uh, perspective. And I always was kind of skeptical of that, and so I sort of spent my career helping to develop this kind of a new science of storytelling where you basically just raid the sciences and steal methods and apply them to typical humanities questions and, and, and so forth. So the book is about this, this new study of narrative psychology. And narrative psychology is a study of how human brains naturally shape stories and how human brains are naturally shaped by stories. And sometimes this can be very much for the, the, the better. Uh, Stories have massive capacity to produce empathy, understanding, charity, peace. Uh, But the paradox of storytelling, the paradox referred to in my book title, is that stories are also, you know, behind everything dark and uh, bad in, in human life. So the story paradox is basically this, that Stories are the very best, and most constructive force on earth. And at the same
0: time, they're also the worst and the most destructive force on earth. Well, to get back to the story about stories before science, if we want to call it that, or at least empirical investigation intervened, the story about stories was something like, you know, there's an alchemy, they're ineffable, they're unknowable, a magic just happens. And maybe it does, but not to the extent that the uh, tellers of that story would have you believe, right?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, there, it, just because it feels like magic doesn't mean that you can't study it using scientific tools. What are the what are right? The source... You know what
0: else feels like magic? Magic, where a magician will say, "Actually, this is how the box is constructed, and it's quite a plus b equals c."
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and
0: so, you know, I don't know. In this,
2: in this about twenty years or so since this uh, new interdisciplinary field has been developing, you know, one of the most interesting areas has been the whole question of something called narrative transportation. And narrative transportation is this wonderful experience. It's one of our favorite things about being human. You know, you come home at night, you turn on your favorite TV show, you open a, a good novel, and you mentally teleport out of your own mundane, boring existence and into these alternative story worlds. And narrative transportation is an authentically altered state of consciousness. Uh, If you go into a movie theater and you turn around, you sit in the front row and you turn around and you look at the people in the movie theater, they're all zoned out, it's like they're hypnotized. And narrative transportation sort of has that effect on people. Um, it brings us into a condition of rapt attention that can go on for hours on end. Suddenly, our, our super short attention spans uh, just disappear. We can pay attention to a good movie for hours on end. And it's also, most importantly, a state of high suggestibility. People are more open-minded when they're in Storyland, land, uh, which is the nice way of putting it. The, the darker way of putting it is that people are a lot more gullible. They're, they're much easier to mold and to manipulate.
0: So, one thing I'm thinking of, and we'll get to a lot of other aspects, but it did occur to me, we now have the most popular stories or things like Netflix series and TV series that people get absolutely obsessed with, and it seems like a fundamental part of that is that binging is allowed. You could, you could imbibe 10 of those in a row if you have the time, or even if you don't, you want to call in sick from for work. What is the effect of that on this narrative transportation and the spell that you're speaking of?
2: Well. In some ways, what I'm saying is very obvious and, and very old. It goes back to Plato's Republic. And 2,400 years ago, Plato already had his hair on fire about the dangers of storytellers, the dangers storytellers embody uh, to individuals and also to whole societies, especially the kind of society he lived in, which was a, a democratic society, the kind of society we live in, that, that the power stories have to make us behave irrationally. And... Now uh, we're living in a time where the power of stories is sort of supercharged. I, I say that we're living in this big bang of storytelling, this shockingly rapid expansion of the universe of stories in every conceivable direction. So one of the things that's part of that big bang is, is the rise of these streaming services and binging, things like Netflix. It's to the point now where the average American is consuming um, almost 12 hours of media per day. I can almost not get that stat out of my mouth because it doesn't seem like it could be possible. But almost 12 hours per day, including hours per day of fiction alone. And we also have another blind spot. If you take people into a science lab and you just ask them, hey, um, how uh, much influence, how much power do stories have in your life? they will say, well, not very much at all. They don't, they don't influence me at all. What influences me are stats, facts, science. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with respect, they're wrong. Um, the story science leaves little reasonable doubt that stories have special, unique capacity to rivet our attention, to rouse us emotionally, and to change how we think and feel and behave. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is because we have this sort of bozo confidence that stories don't influence us very much. And that's precisely what gives them so much influence
0: over us. And referring to the people who say, oh, it's stats, you also point out, you make a case, uh, I think a good case that people are kind of willing to rethink a stat or a fact, but the story that underlines it, that is almost impossible to change.
2: Yeah, this is, uh, human beings are incredibly nimble and incredibly acrobatic when it comes to this. So let's say you have a story in your head, and maybe the story is uh, QAnon. And you have the idea that, you know, Comet uh, Ping Pong, the the pizza parlor in Washington, D.C., is the heart of the whole cannibal pedophile ring. And so a guy goes there with a gun to investigate. He finds that there is no evidence of a, of a cannibal uh, pedophile ring in the basement. In fact, there is no basement. So this whole idea can be proven untrue, but, and people will then adjust the narrative um, but the but the narrative will never be questioned. Um, it, it will go on in the same way. So people, will, the, the facts can can change. The facts can be challenged. But the overall narrative stays
0: intact. So less the listener says, OK, if we we know stories are big, but, you know, are they that important? Right. Every religion is a story. Every oppressive government Uh, exerts its oppression via story every what we would call open and free government does the same thing all families do it basically what is sociology except the study of humans and the different stories they tell themselves and a great contribution of your book is to really highlight the role of villainy which you know is is actually a fairly recent term but Mm -hmm. as a concept it has shaped so much of human thinking
2: yeah yeah this this really gets to the heart of my concerns in the book um, I again the, the storytelling animal, the book I wrote about ten years ago was mainly a, a celebration of the role the positive role that story plays in life and this book is more a, a look at the darker side of it um, if you Ask people, educated people, you know, what's good about stories? Almost everybody would say something like this. They'd say, well, you know, stories are are fun, they're entertaining, but they also give us meaning. You know, they're really important for us. We desperately need meaning. Stories give it to us. And at the very top of the list of positive qualities that we would attribute to stories and storytellers is this. They generate empathy. They are empathy machines, and this is all backed up, actually, by research showing that indeed stories are really good at, at generating empathy. Um, and this research is really good and really interesting, and totally one-sided in a dangerous way. In a way that makes it <laughs> almost the whole make, makes the whole thing almost bullshit. Right. Um, because what the, the research on empathy shows us is that there's this wonderful energy circulating in stories, all this love, charity, peace, empathy, and so forth. This is great. But it genuinely seems not to even notice or take account of the fact that there's a very different energy generating in the stories we tell, and especially in the stories we love best. And it wouldn't be far wrong to call that energy hate. Mm-hmm. We hate the villain of the story who's oppressing the the victims, making life hard uh, for the protagonists. And in fact, we want to see this villain punished, preferably in the most gruesome, humiliating, dangerous, even deadly way possible. When villains are spared or forgiven at the end of the story, uh, people protest. We don't, we don't like it. Um, there's a scholar I like, um, a philosopher named Fritz Breithaupt, and he came up with this term for this. He calls it empathetic sadism, which right. is the joy we take
0: whenever the villain of the story gets his comeuppance, his- Paul, Paul his, Bloom, to interrupt Paul Bloom in Against Empathy, making the exact same point.
2: Precisely, precisely. Yeah. So this empathetic sadism that stories generate, um, the way they encourage us to force someone into the villain role is also what makes stories such a wonderful tool for division and distrust and hatred and uh, eventually violence.
0: And as a percentage of your occupation with the story, as you point out, almost all stories are bad things happen, bad things happen, bad things happen, and then a good thing happens at the end. So the villain <laughs> predominates in that formula.
2: Yeah, the, the villain is is, 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 re, is really necessary. The, the most common structure you find of the story, and this is why... I'm tempted to rename our species Homo fictus. This is my sort of humble uh, recommendation. No one's yeah, taking humble. me It's humble. Let's rename yes. the species. Nothing more humble. <laughs> yes. But no one's no one's taken me up on this uh, That's why suggestion. it's humble. It's
0: not humble, uh, Jonathan. just ignored.
2: <laughs> exactly. That's a better way of putting it. You're right. Um, so... You find uh, this kind of astonishing thing that no matter where you go in the world and no matter when you go there, across cultures, across centuries, no matter how different the people seem, you always find the same astonishing thing. It's that the people tell stories. And on the whole, across all genres of fiction and nonfiction, their stories are exactly like ours. They have the same basic obsessions and the same basic structures. I think I put it in the book something like this. I kind of boil it down to something like uh, people need stories, uh, stories need problems, and problems need villains to cause them. And so this applies not just to fiction stories, but it applies, you know, across the board, to all kinds of storytelling. If you're telling a gossip story to your friend, it will follow this structure. Here's this problem I had, you know, here's here's uh, who the villain was in the story. Um, it applies to uh, news. Uh, so news, you know, it passes through a, a storytelling filter. And the filter uh, systematically captures and discards good news. And it leaves you only with an edited sort of reality show of the very worst things that happened in the world on this day. And if you consume uh, those stories every day of your life, you know, for your whole life, you eventually get to the point where you think that the world is a
0: pretty dark place. Okay, so this just occurred to me. Um, why do you think in sci-fi the ratio of dystopias to utopias? There are a couple. Star Trek is arguably one. Why is the ratio something like nine to one? Uh, I think utopia is very boring. You know, like even like if you go to the Bible,
2: uh, the Bible is really good at describing the dystopia of hell. Yes. You know, it's incredibly carnal. It's incredibly gory. It's fire scorched. It's a terror show. It's just unbelievably vivid uh, the way it's described. And heaven is like, you know, you go there and it's like you sit in the clouds and listen to easy listening, you know. Dystopia um, appeals more strongly to what I call the universal grammar of story. This, uh, the universal grammar of stories, we talked about part of it already, it's problem focused. The other part of the universal grammar of story is it's moralistic. I'm not saying that there's a moral of the story. I'm saying it's moralistic. Somebody's being judged. Some some set of values is being pushed, and a dystopia gives us all of the problems uh, we would ever want, and it almost always gives us a moralistic message too. So, 1984, for instance, George Orwell's you know famous dystopia, is a moralistic warning against uh, you know creeping uh, totalitarianism.
0: Yeah, it is true about hell being compelling? I mean, what are the greatest works about hell? Greatest stories, something like Paradise Lost or Dante's Inferno, you know, two of the 10 most important works ever. What are the greatest works about heaven? I don't know, Defending Your Life, but it's not even heaven or The Good Place. And I don't want to get into spoilers, but that applies too.
2: Well, what's fascinating about what you just said, though, is there are great examples of heaven um, being portrayed by great poets so milton writes paradise lost and people love it milton writes paradise regained which is more about the more about heaven and no one pays attention no one <laughs> no one reads that poem uh, dante writes the inferno uh, but he also writes a, a a long epic poem about paradise no one cares no one reads it it's boring it just doesn't have the sort of narrative gravity Mm-hmm. that these hellish worlds have, you might expect that people, would. since we have this capacity to simulate alternative worlds, we would go into these worlds of hedonism where you know, everything was good and we got to live in paradise. We don't go to those worlds. We don't go to heaven. We're not interested at all. We will pay for simulations, say in a horror film, of situations that we would pay anything to avoid in real life.
0: Well, there is a theory that roller coasters and scary movies serve a function, a primal function, uh, back when we were chased by beasts in the savannah, and we're not getting that sort of uh, adrenaline, so we seek it out in entertainment, quote-unquote.
2: Yeah, yeah, I find that to be a a fairly plausible uh, idea in storytelling. You know, we don't we don't really know for sure what the evolutionary story is uh, that made us into storytelling animals. But you know, one of the main theories is that that stories are a sort of. Oh, a, a flight simulator where you get to go in, confront all the problems that, that the, most, the most dangerous problems really that, that humans might face. For instance, you know, what might it be like to, you know, confront a really powerful and, and dangerous man? But at the end, you know, the hero of the story dies in your place. You get all the experience of seeing what it would be like, um, but you don't die at the end.
0: And that's it for part one of the interview. See, if I told you it was a two part story, you may have attended to it differently. Jonathan Gottschall will be back tomorrow to talk about our current political moment and how storytelling affects and infects it all. And now the spiel. After the United Kingdom had won the war, Churchill had roused the public to its finest hour The British looked ahead. They found they had no more use for Churchill, or at least his and his party's ideas. Churchill didn't have much to sell the public on behalf of the Tories, and they were tossed out of office in the election of 1945. Boris Johnson, like all great leaders, all great party leaders in the UK, has learned the lesson of the Great Lion maybe too well. As a clever man, and Boris is a clever man, Johnson knows how much of Churchill does not apply to him. Johnson, for instance, has low approval ratings after release of an investigator's report today about excessive or any partying during the pandemic. Johnson knows two thirds of the British public, according to polls, want him out. Churchill, on the other hand, was always personally beloved. But it wasn't enough. Churchill was bereft of an agenda and admitted as much. Johnson today knows full well he's barely tolerated. So what does he have to fall back on? The promise of all to come. He emphasized that as he stood before the House of Commons and admitted at least some wrongdoing. Then he immediately pivoted to the bright future as attested by the accomplishments of the past. And I can tell the House and this country that we are going to bring the same energy and commitment to getting on with the job, to delivering for the British people, and to our mission to unite and level up across this country, Mr. Speaker, and I commend this statement to the House. Johnson was jeered and heckled. One MP, Ian Blackford, refused to withdraw what seemed to be a factual, though impolitic, charge. It's bad enough,
2: Mr. Speaker that the Prime Minister's personal integrity is in the ditch, that this murky business is tainting everything around it. The public know this is a man they can no longer trust. He has been investigated by the police. He misled the House. He must now resign. Order. You'll have to withdraw
0: that last comment. Blackford did not withdraw, as per the parliamentarian's request, and so he was withdrawn, removed from the House proceedings. It might seem that the central issue at hand, whether Boris Johnson did knowingly attend a few parties, isn't the equivalent of an order to break into the Watergate, or denying humanitarian aid to advance a domestic agenda, or fomenting an insurrection, or even having sex with that woman. And knowing Boris Johnson, he may in fact have had sex with that woman. But he definitely attended a party where there was too much drinking. Johnson's original excuse was, oh, I didn't even know that work event was a party, which tells you something about Boris Johnson's high standards for what constitutes a party. There were disclosures along the way of suitcases of wine, a party pace of more than one per month during the lockdown period, broken children's playground equipment. Daddy, they've scuppered my swings. The public couldn't believe it, which Johnson totally admitted. We have shown that we have done things that people thought were impossible oh i'd say oh wait boris johnson was not saying that at all he was touting his achievements is more important than his merriments might it work well In every scandal, there is one determinant of the question, will it bring down the central player? It's not the seriousness of the charges. It's not the solidity of the accusations. It's certainly not the, it's not the cover up but the crime, not that cliche. No, the outcome for a political figure inside a scandal is almost entirely determined by this question. How much is that political figure needed by those who have the power to swing the ax? Nixon succumbed to Watergate we're told, because of the decency of Republicans at the time who could no longer stand by the president. But zoom out one level and you'll find that Republicans turned on Nixon because America was not yet ideologically sorted and party polarized, meaning those Republicans plausibly felt they were exposed, they themselves exposed and vulnerable because of Nixon's misdeeds. The Republicans of Trump decided they still needed him and therefore he stayed. Andrew Cuomo, not needed by New York Democrats, gone. New Jersey politicians perceived it too unsure and costly to try to impeach Chris Christie, a big reason he wrote out Bridgegate. Now in the parliamentary system, it's a lot easier to remove a leader and less costly. So the calculation for conservatives, a party that's already seeing defections is, are we better off without Boris? The Conservatives just won a huge majority in the last election. Do they risk losing it all in the next one if they keep Boris at the helm? Has the public tired so much of Johnson that they're better off without him? Also remember, though I downplayed the seriousness of the offense in absolute terms, looked at another way, it's a very serious betrayal. Here is the Scottish Parliament's former Conservative leader, Ruth Davidson, getting a bit choked up. I am upset, and I'm upset because, not just because of things that Myself and others that are in my close family and circle of friends missed and had to give up. But, you know, I was working in the Scottish Parliament. I had constituents that lost businesses. I had people that feel guilty that they didn't go to the care home to see their parents, that they didn't hug a friend at a funeral because they played by the rules. And now they look at what happened in number 10 and they feel like idiots and they shouldn't be made to feel like that. And that's the sentiment that may well oust Boris Johnson, not the effrontery or the inherent callousness, but the fact that even a member of Johnson's own party, though not of Johnson's own parliament, could be so affected by his actions that she's driven to conclude they'd all be better off without him. It's not the case that this is just a cynical use of a supposed scandal to achieve political ends. That's where members of the opposition think that whoever is in power is the scandal actual conservatives also feel wronged that Johnson lied. And some conservatives will feel wrong that Johnson's actions reveal what they themselves suspected all along, that these lockdowns weren't necessary. There's enough of people in the first group and the second group to be a big problem within the party. So right now, the report that just came out, the Sue Gray report, is still in the hands of the prime minister, 10 Downing Street. And 10 Downing Street is asking the public to wait on an actual criminal report from the Metropolitan Police. They seem to be doing nothing more than buying time and hoping for the best. So here we have the rare government leader who could be felled, not for bribing, but imbibing. Today, Boris Johnson hangs on just barely. He decided to have a party and now the party will decide whether it will have him. And that's it for today's show. The GIST senior producer is Joel Patterson. And though a singular figure, I'm pleased to announce there is an assistant producer here at The GIST. His name is Corey Wara. And Corey, tell us a little bit
1: about your last job before you came to work here at The GIST. I would bring a hoodie with me whenever I worked. So in case the shit hit the fan and it got too crazy, I would just put my hoodie on and leave. Okay, uh, more on that later.
0: Michelle Pesca is the Chief Recruitment Officer of Peach Fish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, check out AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Peru, Peru, and thanks for listening.